This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and this is episode 159. Today, I sat down with Alec Jaffe, the founder and CEO of Alex Ice Cream. Alex Ice Cream is the first and only regenerative verified and USDA organic certified ice cream utilizing 100% A2 dairy, which has been known to lead to easier digestion, unlike A1 dairy, which accounts for the majority of dairy on the market. Alex shares his story from growing up surfing in Laguna Beach to playing football at USC with dreams of going pro to suffering from his shoulder injury, which shifted his career ambitions and led to a job working in corporate sponsorships for AEG. We talk about his experience working at a tech startup, why he decided to start an ice cream brand, and the challenges he faced in finding a dairy supplier. If you've ever wondered what regenerative farming or rotational grazing is, this is the episode for you. We'll also dive into retail strategy, fundraising, and why it's important to stay focused. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and you can check us out online on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Alec. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining the show. Doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to hear your story and building your ice cream, basically, is what it is. It's your name. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Alex Ice Cream. And that's not with an X, people. Alex Ice Cream is actually A-L-E-C apostrophe S. Yep. We were joking about that before we have done. But anyways, so let's start from the beginning. Let's hear about your childhood. Let's hear what it was like growing up for you. Yeah. So grew up in Southern California. Where? In Laguna Beach. So small beach town, you know, and yeah, kind of classic Southern California. Surfing. Beach kid like lifestyle. a kid yeah. surfing on the beach. Just, yeah, going to the beach every day in summer, you know, it's kind of you leave in the morning and go to the beach and come home when the sun goes down. And it's a pretty awesome way to grow up. Sounds pretty cool. Did you get like a lot of jellyfish stings or like, I feel like they're not really here on the West Coast as much as they are on the East. There, Yeah, there's a, I mean, you always saw them, you know, every once in a while. I have never been stung by a jellyfish, made it out, made it out alive. You did. Wow. What about a crab? Any bites from a crab? No <laughs> crab. I did get a stingray on the bottom of my foot once, which that was pretty brutal. Yeah. I mean, it's a numbers game. If you're out there like every day, that's what I'm asking, you know, like how many times did you get hurt? Yeah, you're bound to get hurt at least once. I like pools of water that you can see the bottom in, you know, that's Mm, like my mm -hmm. role. I feel like, you know, as a kid, I was like, let's go. I just thought about, you know, didn't think so much about it. But now I think too much about what could be in the water by your feet. 
Yeah. If you start thinking about it too much, you're, you're, you're never going to go in the yeah. water, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you grew up surfing Laguna Beach. Did you have any siblings? What did your parents do? Yeah. So I grew up two younger brothers. Dad worked in real estate development. We moved out to California. Born in, I was born in Miami, Florida, along with my brothers were born there as well. We moved out to California for my dad's work. And then for us, you know, growing up, it was just our house was always full of people and full of food. Um, I think we were the house that all of friends loved to come over and raid our pantry. And it felt like the kitchen was always kind of the place where people were were hanging out. So, and it was always a interesting mix of like, even as a little kid, we had, you know, Horizon organic milk and a bunch of organic foods, but then also a pint of Ben and Jerry's in the freezer and which was a, a staple growing up and, you know, all the fun snacks in the pantry as well. So it was an interesting mix of being very healthy and also indulging in <laughs> some, some, some yeah. snacks. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? What was your dream when you were little? Professional football player. At what age did you start loving football? Five years old. Sports was always a huge part of my life. I mean, that's, I think about my childhood. I think about sports. I can still remember my first like big sports memory was, so my dad went to the University of Florida, which is a big sports school. And Florida State is their big rival. And so I remember being a little kid and he took me out to that game, Florida, Florida State. College game day was there, which is a big pregame show, you know, and like tailgating and stuff. Are they yeah. tailgating? Okay. T- yeah. It's like this big ESPN college football show where they pick one game a week. And so if they're going to that game, it's a whole big deal. The, all the students get super excited. And so, as I think I might have been eight years old and going to that, it's just like, mind blowing all the you know 90,000 people in the stadium everyone going crazy and i was just was hooked after that you're like i have to get on that field i have to be there and so that's that, awesome since then you know since i was, I was a little kid that was my goal was i was going to play division 1 college football yeah that's awesome isn't it funny how when you watch someone else do something mm-hmm. and, and it can inspire you to want to do it yourself I mean, yeah it's such a great sign of passion or, you know, something that you want to do or something that you should pursue if you feel that way. I remember feeling like that a few times, like as just a soccer player as a kid and like watching other games, I would get so annoyed about other kids not doing certain things that I would want to do, you know, it's like yeah. actually hard to watch because mm-hmm. you, know, you just want to be on the field so bad. That's funny. So you wanted to go pro, you wanted to play football, you have this early memory, which is really cool. And when you look back at your childhood some more, I guess, from an entrepreneurial perspective, Mm -hmm. was there anything that you did growing up that you look back and say, oh, that was actually really entrepreneurial? Yeah. So... And it doesn't have to be like the traditional selling something to yeah, other kids. I, I, like I think it comes in all forms. It's like creative problem solving. It's it's mm-hmm. doing something different. Yeah, I think I maybe had one or two lemonade stands, but I wasn't the kid with the you know the lemonade stand on the corner every single weekend. But I did start a when I was thirteen. So I was getting bar mitzvah, and <laughs> along with that, you had to do a community service project. And so what I did along with two of my friends 
we started this, we all played music and we were all in, in garage bands as middle school kids. And what instrument were you playing? I was a drummer. And we started this concert, this benefit concert for the City of Hope Cancer Research Center. And so we rented out a small theater in town, got my band, got their band, got some other just artists in, you know, middle school and high school in town to perform. And we sold tickets for charity and ended up so and it, was, and it went really well. It was like, oh, this is really cool. We hosted the show. We did everything. And it ended up going really well. And we just kept doing it. And so I did that from... I was 13 all the way through my senior year of high school. Started a club in school and everything. And we ended up raising over $20,000 over the life of the the show. And so, yeah, I think that was one thing that was definitely, you know, one of my first experiences organizing a group of people and creating some goal or, you know, mission of we're going to do this event and all the different pieces from booking the venue to selling tickets, marketing it. And you were leading the project. Yeah. Yeah. It was me and me and a couple of buddies. Isn't that interesting how things that we do as a kid show like leadership ability mm-hmm. and just natural interest? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I just look back sometimes and I remember every lease I ever signed as like a college kid, I was the one on it. (laughs) Whether it was a senior week house at the beach, I was on the lease. If it was a house we were renting in college for just to live for the semester or a year, I was on the lease and I was the one finding the roommates and I was the one getting the better deal on the biggest room in the house. You know, I was like, why do I do that? I don't know. Why why do I have to be like that? (laughs) Yep. I think the other thing too, is just looking at my athletic journey as well and how I ended up where I ended up. So I didn't make it pro, but I made it, I accomplished my childhood goal at least. And so I ended up playing D1 football, but had a kind of winding path to get there and just went to a small school, wasn't super heavily recruited out of high school, but ended up going to junior college and playing there and then finding a way to get noticed by coaches at USC and and play there. So I think that was also just like seeing how that transitions to what I'm doing now, just so much perseverance and (laughs) hustle and willingness to overcome all the obstacles put in your way. And also people not believing in you. And there's so many, so many different things that translate. Who wasn't believing in you when you were doing the football stuff and trying to get seen by USC? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was, I didn't have like the there wasn't a villain in my life who was actively being like, you can't do this. Damn it. I thought we had a cool story here. I know. (laughs) No, I get my, my vengeance. I mean, no, but it's like there are coaches who felt like, Oh, you know, you're not fast enough or you're not big enough or you're not strong enough. All the classic sports things just, you know, and, and I believe I was, I believe I could compete and play at that level. And so being able to get there and sort of prove all those people who just didn't think I had that ability wrong was pretty cool. But I mean, even more so more than that, just accomplishing something that I had wanted to do since I was a little kid, since I, you know, just, it was just this goal that was always there. And being able to actually do it was really rewarding. hundred percent. I think that builds enormous confidence too. Mm -hmm. If you can do that, so early on, like before you even get into your career mode, I feel like you have such a huge leg up on confidence of what you're able to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really feel like 
you can do anything yeah, if you, you know, it, you, I, you really do feel that way. It's yes. like, it's kind of this athlete mentality of like, if I work hard enough and I just put in the time and effort, I'll be able to do it. And also, you know, going into an environment like at USC, where there's so many talented, really talented guys yeah. on that team. So yeah. many guys who I play with are now in the NFL and had successful careers playing professionally, you know, walking into that team. And just in my position group, there's multiple guys who are high school All-Americans, you know, best of the best in right. the entire nation in high school. So it's, I mean, you, but you have to get you. comfortable playing, like being in that environment, not being afraid of that. Yeah, definitely. Pushing yourself physically and all those things, mentally, physically, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can relate in some way because I pursued modeling when I was in high school. And so that was like a dream that I had had. And obviously, you know, what girl doesn't want to try to be a model, you know, like that's what yeah. you're competing against is like the entire world. <laughs> so and obviously these top agencies, they take such a small percentage but anyways, it's a long story. We won't go there. But I have a hustle story, too. And the confidence I built from being able to get signed by a top, top agency and being able to live out that dream. I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing that can build more confidence than that. Oh, yeah, totally. And that is totally, I mean, in the modeling industry, too, I don't know, maybe there's some similarities with being chosen in the football world. Like, you're mm -hmm. also chosen in the modeling world. You don't have a lot of control over that at all. Yeah. But you still, you know... And also in the modeling world, what I'm trying to say is a lot of girls actually just get plucked from a mall and they're like, hey, do you mm. want a model? Here's a contract. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that was like not my story at all. I hustled yeah. my ass off for yeah. a lot of a lot of ways to try to get in there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know how that goes. So yeah. Yeah. In the win. football world, I was not the getting plucked from the mall being like, hey, yeah. you're on the team. <laughs> totally. that, was not, that was not my experience. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But just tons of no's, lots yep. of no's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll never do it. You'll never make it. What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you got in USC, D1 football. How was that experience? And then what did you decide to do after college? It was a really interesting experience because you dream about it, you visualize it, you romanticize it, and then you're in it. And it's it's different when you're actually in it and behind the curtain in a way of how it actually works. And it's very much a business and it's cool. That's what it is. I, unfortunately, I was starting to do well in practices and everything. And then unfortunately got a pretty bad injury on my shoulder and yeah, some complications post-surgery and a whole, a whole slew of things. And so that really derailed everything. Oh, how much time had passed before that happened, that injury happened? Like how much time were you in the football league? And then when that happened, like what was the timing? Yeah. So not that much time. So I transferred in after my freshman year. So sophomore year, I came in in the fall and it was kind of too late to really do anything. So I just sort of sat around in, in the, sat the bench in my sophomore year, which was normal for my position coming into the team. And then that off season is when you have what's called spring practices. And so like you're practicing in the spring and learning plays and, you know, essentially trying out to be, to gain a better position on the roster and was doing well there. And then that's when I got hurt. So it was sort of my first time when I had an opportunity to really compete and earn my spot as like a person getting playing time. Yeah. And got hurt. So, Ouch. That's yeah. painful on so many levels. 
Yes. Oh my goodness. Oh, so I mean, did you just fall into a depression or like what did you feel after that? How did you, you know, you had worked so hard and here yeah. you get unfortunately hurt. Yeah. I know I went from my highest high to like very yeah. low low. I even we had a like a mini scrimmage and I did super well and I got was like player of that scrim or whatever. And, you know, then like after practice, I can't even lift my arm over let my left arm over my head because it just I tore my ligament in my left shoulder. And that was tough. But I stuck with it. I kept doing the physical therapy and rehab and trying to get it back, you know, repaired and never really worked because there was some nerve damage after the surgery. And, you know, but yeah, I still stuck with it. Ended up getting to play in the final game, getting it a carry. So I got to run with the ball and get a few yards. And that was nice to, you know, actually just have that cap off the career and then move on to the working world oh, <laughs> like everyone else. That's so tough. That's so yeah. tough. Yeah. But that's the reality of football. You know, like most you th- think about all the glory stories of, you know, it's whatever, life. You know, on the NFL. You know, but yeah. Things happen yeah. all this all the time just because you like work really hard relentlessly and you get in doesn't mean you'll be successful once you're in. I mean, I never yep. became a supermodel of any sort. The recession hit and blew up everything. So it's like, you know, shit happens. Yeah. You don't have control over it, unfortunately. And that's just how it is. You just got to get back up and figure out something else or keep trying. So what did you end up doing? What did you want to do from there? You're like, okay, this is not going to be a professional situation for me. Where did your interest kind of shift to? Spoiler alert, still in sports. Uh, so, uh. <laughs> um, I tried a couple things, tried working at a agency. So thinking about representing athletes, I figured, all right, I'm, I'm, you know, I have all these connections to all these guys going to the NFL, you know, it's a kind of a natural transition. Ended up not following that career path, just didn't feel like exactly what I wanted to do. First job out of college was working at Anschutz Entertainment Group, AEG, which owns a bunch of major sports and entertainment properties in LA. It's like Staples Center, LA Live, LA Kings, LA Galaxy. So pretty major, (laughs) major properties. Yeah. And I was in their corporate partnerships group. So I was working, you know, being an account executive, managing relationships with some of their corporate sponsors. Great. And so what happened, I guess, from there? What are some of the things you've learned, if anything, probably a lot? If that was a sales job, I'm sure you took a ton of learnings from that to help you Mm -hmm. in building your business. Yeah. So that was more of an account management job. So I was more built like maintaining the relationship, making sure things executed. So sales would go in, sell the contract. We're going to give you XYZ activations as a sponsor. It's going to be amazing. Here's Alec. He's going to make it all happen. (laughs) Oh, nice. Yeah. So I was the main point of contact. And so it was really great from a, okay, I come in, you know, 21 years old, right out of college. And now I'm dealing with, you know, people who at these major corporations who are expecting this, you know, Staples Center (laughs) sponsorship plan that they're putting a lot of money behind to go smoothly. And yeah, so I got I'm sure it's not a small amount of money either. No. So they just spent a ton of money and they're looking Mm -hmm. at you at 21 years old being like, hi. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're going to do what for us? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They didn't put me on any of the major, major partnerships. I was managing around like a million dollars worth of sponsorships, which is a lot of money, but not big. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. 
one of my shining moments was I got one of our spot was part of a pretty major expansion for an account. So I got to, you know, deal with seeing how can we grow businesses? How can we, and also dealing with just, or working with clients and people who are way older than me and expecting me to be very on top of my game. And like, it was a very, well, and you're probably the person they go to when they don't like something, right? Yes, 100%. So you're They're hearing like, all the shit that mm-hmm. no one else is hearing. Yep. It's like, we were supposed to have our ad spot run at this exact time in the game and it didn't even run at all. Like, what happened? And like, uh, yeah, back to like, yeah, exactly. So it was a very quick learning process there. I also learned that I liked being the athlete in sports more than working in sports. It's a lot more fun when you're on the field than when you're working in the stadium around the field. So I decided, okay, this isn't really for me. Ended up moving to a small tech startup that a family friend had started and was their first business side hire. So I was doing sales and marketing and just trying to figure it out. There was was no structure. It was me reporting directly to the CEO. We were working in a little room together in a co-working space. And this was kind of your first real like startup experience. Exactly. And so in that experience, was there a moment where you're like, I want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I had started to get the startup bug, I guess. And this was around 2015 when, you know, startups were getting like really cool to to work at. And yeah, everyone was kind of talking about startups. And so like, oh, this this seems interesting. I want to try it. And I always with the idea that eventually I felt like I could, you know, run my own thing and start my own company, but wanted to just get in that world. And so I had a family friend who had started, who had been super successful in other stuff in his career, and he was starting a startup. And so I figured I'd try it out. It was an incredibly good learning experience. And I mean, the startup didn't work. So it was a great learning experience and all the things to not do and to avoid. I mean, there were, of course, good learnings too, or like good things that we did, but What did you learn not to do? So what I learned not to do was the biggest learning, I guess, is to turn it into like what I think to do is based on what I saw we didn't do is being focused. And focus is, I say the word focus all the time. Like as far as is this keeping us focused? I don't want to lose focus. And that's in everything that we're doing as far as who is our customer target what's our who what types of taking it to what we're what I'm now doing like, what retailers do we want to sell our product in we don't want to be everywhere all at once to start what is the product you know like does this match the vision and focus for what we want the product to be i think just being really clear about that that's the biggest thing that i learned and then on top of that create a really amazing product the product just didn't truthfully didn't fully work. And so I was the only sales and marketing person. And so I was doing everything from where it was a, it was a software as a service SaaS product. So I was writing the, you know, blog posts on the website for SEO and doing all that like B2B marketing, but then also doing cold calling. And we were selling a product that people had didn't really have a budget for because it was a new kind of way to think about marketing as far as like social media goes and communications with your audience or fan base, essentially a digital community type 
product. But you know, these companies didn't have the budget set for it because it was a different way to do things. And then the product didn't fully work either. So we didn't have any amazing case studies that I could point to to be like, hey, it worked for this similar company. Like, why don't you try it? And right. so it was just a ton of cold calling, a ton of trying to convince people. That's and such then, good practice, though, cold calling. I mean, what a oh, great yeah. resiliency muscle to build. Mm-hmm. I can all cold call anyone. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't enjoy it. I don't, I'd I'll even to. pick up cold calls myself. Yeah. <laughs> No, but it's a huge, I think like I've heard many people say this, but it is, I think, true that even a few months of having to do cold calling is just so valuable for your career. Yeah. And so how did you go from sports to tech to ice cream? Doesn't everyone? Everyone doesn't do (laughs) that. You're like, that's not normal. Isn't that a normal (laughs) path? Yeah. So for ice cream, that really goes backwards in a way. So I had taught myself how to make ice cream in elementary school, class project, make something at home, bring it into class to present and show how you made something. Why did you choose ice cream? I don't know. I mean, ice cream was always a staple in our household. Like we always had ice cream in the freezer. We, it was kind of like, all right, dinner's over. Like who wants some ice cream? You know, kind of thing. Always got ice cream after basketball games growing up, go to the Basket Robins, downtown Laguna. Uh, Robbins, exactly. Yep. Yep. So this was before we had fancy ice cream shops. No, I hear you. I'm I'm, I'm of that era for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, a Baskin Robbins banana split was like an eight-year-old kid's dream. So it just was always a product that I loved. And so I taught myself how to make it. And just, it was a hobby growing up. It wasn't something I took super seriously, but I knew how to make it. And then also... Grew up around family members very involved in sustainable agriculture and sustainable food systems. And so that's kind of the context for and background and of these life experiences that I had. And so I'm at the tech startup. It's shutting down. It's very clear that it's it's not going to work out. And I'm just trying to think about what I wanted to do next with my life and start playing around with a bunch of different ideas. Everything from software ideas, you know, making prototypes for to different, like actual physical products and started experimenting with ice cream. Well, how long when you were thinking of different ideas? Like what was that time span? Was it like three or six months where you're like, I want to come up with an idea. I think I want to start my next thing. I don't my first thing. What will it be? Was that like a couple months? No, it was probably like a year. Oh, wow. Exploration. I I was still at the company. So I was like, just, you know on nights and weekends, like right. mocking up prototypes of what like a software, like what an app flow would look like and taught myself how to do kind of prototyping and everything. And what was the moment? Like, where were you when you were like, I think ice cream is it? Yeah. I was actually really torn between going the software route or ice cream. I mean, and- it's tough. I mean, software scales <laughs> a lot easier. Valuations are higher. You're talking to me. I mean, I feel the same. I build a tech company, so I can I know what you're saying. Yeah, right. Like go for the super asset light, really right. high margin business. Totally. Or you could start a frozen dairy product business where you need to do manuf- manufacture a physical Pain product. Pain in the ass to ship. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so easy choice. You pick the ice cream. You pick route. the best one. <laughs> yeah. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What led to it was I just felt like there was one, I felt I just enjoyed it more. I genuinely resonated with the product and the idea more. The software route felt like I felt like there was a real you know, problem solution and all that sort of stuff. Did a bunch of customer discovery, talking to just, and this was where the cold calling comes in, like literally walking into businesses and like, hey, can, is there, you know, this person that I can talk to and just basically show up and be like, hey, here are my five questions. Can you answer them for me? So I can- About ice cream or about software? About the software thing. Oh, okay. So I had gone through that whole process and was like really deep into it. And just like, I don't know, I don't really resonate with this as much as the ice cream thing where I feel like there is a really cool opportunity to create an amazing tasting ice cream that also talks about sustainability and is using really great ingredients because no one's really doing that. There's great tasting ice creams out there. And but looking at the grocery store and kind of where everything is going in consumer products, there's like having great flavor is sort of the baseline. And then you're adding these really unique attributes to it, whether it's sustainability or some sort of functional benefit or unique ingredients. But it's not just like, oh, here's a thing that tastes a little bit better. But I felt like that wasn't really happening in ice cream. Like you had plant-based ice creams popping up, but I felt like you're sacrificing taste a lot of times with plant-based ice cream. And so I wanted to create an ice cream that you didn't have to sacrifice one thing for the other. It would be an additive experience where because of the sustainable, better ingredients, it's actually creating a better product. How did you even like find out about what regenerative is and means? And can you help explain what that is for everybody listening and myself? Yeah. So the regenerative piece came actually a little bit further down the line after we started. So the highlights to get to the regenerative, the in-between of like, okay, I'm going to do ice cream to finding regenerative is wanted to create an amazing organic pasture-raised ice cream, do a product development, spend about a year developing a product at home, in the kitchen for friends and family, want to turn it into a business, couldn't find a co-packer to work with us because they just didn't want to process organic dairy at that small volumes. So I was thinking about doing a scoop shop, but I really wanted to do more of the CPG product for grocery stores route. And got really lucky and found this shutdown ice cream factory available for sale in what? Sonoma. Where? County. Sonoma. Wow. In Petaluma. Yeah. In Petaluma, California. And this was 2019. And so I moved into the factory. My younger brother, Zach, had joined me in January 2020. Perfect timing. But how did you even find out about this factory? 
Yeah. Were you looking on those websites that are like buy, no. sell, <laughs> you know, distressed companies or we honestly weren't looking for a factory because that the idea of that is just so crazy to do that. So it wasn't even on our mind. And then my mom had gotten involved with this organization called the Ecology Center, which is this really cool regenerative organic working farm in Orange County that does a bunch of really cool stuff. And on the sustainability front and education and programs, they have an amazing farm stand too. So if you're in the Orange County, Southern California area, definitely check out the Ecology Center. And someone who is involved in that organization is also in the dairy world. And he, you know, one thing led to another, some different introductions and they're like, Hey, this factory is available. Like if this, you know, what about this? And it was a, it was a great price because of the situation in which we we're buying it and we were just buying the equipment. So we're leasing the, the space and it just felt like an opportunity that was too good to pass up. So it did that COVID hits, you know, just delays things, but we're still on track. We launch our product in local grocery stores. And then we, as a result of COVID, actually our dairy supplier that we were using for organic dairy gets shut down. The dairy supply chain is like, we could do a whole episode just on that. It's very difficult. It's a very difficult world, especially if you're a tiny startup, not even, you know, Hey, we're a small company that's kind of been around and like, we don't do a lot of volume, but we're consistent. And here's what we do. Like no one knew who we were. We had no proof that you should work with us. So it's really hard to find organic dairy and especially organic cream at super small volumes and not consistent purchasing patterns and everything. So that created a big challenge for us. It was like, you can't make ice cream if you don't have dairy. So we were scrambling, looking around, and we actually ended up getting introduced to Alexander Family Farms, who is our now dairy supplier. And they were the first certified regenerative organic dairy in the US. And they were like part of the pilot of creating these regenerative certification standards for for dairies. And it was just a huge, huge break because it allowed us to one, just make the product, you know? So on the surface level, it's just like, great. Now we have a, a dairy supplier. But beyond that, it allowed us to really further our mission in a way that I didn't even know was possible through regenerative agriculture. And then also added a really cool component with a digestion benefit through A2 dairy as well, which they they produce. What is A2 dairy? Yeah. So regenerative and A2 is like the two kind of new trend buzzword things that are really unique and really exciting. And we're the only ice cream company doing both. So we're really passionate about them. A2 dairies is, so A2 is a milk protein. It's a beta casein protein. All mammals produce this A2 protein. Cows a long time ago, like thousands of years ago, some of them started producing a variant protein that's called an A1 protein. That A1 protein through studies has been linked to be a cause for dairy sensitivity symptoms. So, you know, if you eat dairy products and you don't feel great after, that may be because of the A1 protein. A lot of people just automatically associate it with lactose, and that may not necessarily be the case. So with what they found is that a lot of people are able to have A2 dairy products and feel great. So we've had tons of people who come up to us and say, we haven't been able, been able to eat ice cream in years because it always hurts our stomach and you know it's just not worth it. 
I feel totally fine after eating your ice cream. So it's a really cool thing where it, it does open up. You know, it's not like this isn't a medical guarantee, but it does open up and allow many people to enjoy dairy who haven't been able to in the past. So super cool just to think about it from our product standpoint. You can have a delicious real dairy ice cream indulgent experience and still feel great afterwards and not feel like, you know, you got to go take a nap on the couch because you're in a food coma and your stomach hurts. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a light ice cream by any means. Like it's a full, yeah, no, it's indulgent a full very uh, creamy yeah. ice cream. It's delicious. Thank you. Yeah. And so with regenerative farming, can you explain like what the value is of that and how that makes it just like you talk about sustainability, like how does that fit mm-hmm. in with that? Yeah. Regenerative agriculture is this really cool movement happening that takes ancient and in indigenous farming practices and looks at farming holistically and holistically within the ecosystem that you're farming in. And basically, how can we farm in a way that works with our landscape, works with our ecosystem that we're in, in a way that actively regenerates our earth and the ecosystem that we're farming in. And that also creates really positive outcomes on the farm itself. And so it uses a variety of practices. Um, you have to really look at it as a whole system and use the variety of practices to create these outcomes. And the kind of main highlight outcomes are carbon sequestration, which basically means the healthy plants that are on the healthy soil are able to pull carbon out of the air and store it in the soil. Because that's really when you boil down regenerative agriculture, it boils down to building soil health because that just has so many it follow on impacts. And Isn't so there like a yeah. movie about this on Netflix. Yeah. Kiss the ground. Yes. As I yeah. saw that. And so I think what it is, right. It's like they have like the cows kind of in like different sections and like, they're not allowed to move over to the other sections until like a certain time. And they don't use the same plows that I guess, or whatever the tools are that destroy the natural soil. So it's kind of like this whole industrialization of the industry ruined the soil because of all the tools and they're not like nurturing the soil. And so this is more of like, I guess the word regenerative is like just making it what it was before we got all industrialized and messed up everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, Rylan, from, who's one of the makers of the Kiss the Ground film, is a, an advisor with the company and a friend. And yeah, so what we're talking about with the cows is rotational grazing. Yes, and rotational grazing. You, That's what Where the you is. essentially turn your pasture into a grid and you're moving the cows into these grids at certain time intervals. And what that does is it prevents the cows from one, eating the grass down to the root, but also maintains a healthy level of growth in the grass and also concentrates compost, natural compost from the cows, you know, outputs. Right. And outputs. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they're, you know, stomping it in the soil and everything and just providing a lot of really essential, you know, bacteria and organic matter and nutrients back into the soil. And, and so it's this really cool circular grass. system. Exactly. Right. It's like the circular system. And then when they eat the grass, the grass is better because it was in mm-hmm. the better soil. And then they have better dairy outcomes, I guess. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you can see it even when we're just making our ice cream base with this regenerative dairy versus non-regenerative dairy. The color is different. Like, we, I don't, you know, when you have 
a really high quality butter and it has that kind of almost yellow golden color to it. That's from the grass. It's from the beta casein that are not beta casein. Sorry. That's um, from the nutrients that are in the grass. And so you're just seeing like that, the high quality diet that the cows are eating is playing out into the milk that they're producing. It's also, you know, been shown that grass-fed dairy has higher levels of omega-3s and CLAs and like healthy fats. And so it's, it's more nutrient-dense dairy as well. Well, I'm glad it's good for you or semi-good for you because it tastes really good. I tried a bunch of flavors. I'm a mint chocolate chip person. I don't, you know, it's like it almost doesn't matter what form it's in. I have to have mint chocolate chip. It's the best. It's my favorite flavor. And yours is <laughs> really good. You got you, the mint chocolate chip flavor is my favorite. Mm-hmm. My second favorite. I love the vanilla bean. That was a good one. Chocolate, chocolate chip. That's super chocolatey. <laughs> it was really yep. cool Yeah. But you have some other inf- like really interesting flavors. You have salted caramel latte, honey blueberry lavender. Mm-hmm. I was really nervous to try that, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I was kind of nervous. I was like, what the F is that? Like, I don't even know. <laughs> Blueberries, mm, lavender, uh, ice cream, lavender ice cream. Yeah. But I was actually pleasantly surprised. It was actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that flavor has been really successful in the market. I mean, we were surprised because exactly that whole thought process that you just walked through, we thought people might be hesitant to try it, but it's actually been one of our better selling flavors and people really love it. That's awesome. Yeah. The matcha chocolate chip is pretty good too. And then the peanut butter fudge honeycomb, that one is like, that's really good. But I'm still, I'm still a mint, mint girl through and through. I just, you know, just can't help myself. And I, I hear you. That was my favorite flavor growing up as a kid. Still really? is. Yep. So question, why is it not green? I know the box <laughs> of the carton is green, but why is, why is it not green? I don't know. So we don't use any food coloring or food dye Fair. or anything like that. Fair. Yeah, we're trying to be fancy over here. So doing the white mint chip. You could do like spirulina or something, you know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Just kidding. Awesome. So is that your favorite too, is the mint? Oh man, I'm really loving our peanut butter one right now. Because I'm like asking you to name your favorite child. Yeah, exactly. So our newest flavor, we just came out with the peanut butter fudge honeycomb. It actually just won a, an award for best new dessert at Expo West, which is the big natural products trade show this year. Thank you. That one is really, it's almost addicting because you get those crunchy honeycomb toffee pieces in there and it just, you keep wanting to dig for more of them. But the, yeah, the mint chip for me is always kind of my tried and true. I'll always go back to that. Yeah. Amazing. And so how has business been so far? You know, you could have started a software company here and yeah. now you've got, you've got a ice cream company. Yeah. How has it been? You've been doing it for almost five years now, I think. So can you kind of tell us, I guess, a few things of what you thought it would be and what it actually is or what you wish you knew along the way? Yeah. I had no idea that it would be what it is like, I guess, is what I'll and say. And what does I that mean? I didn't really know what to expect. I kind of just got, you have this naive excitement and confidence going into it where you're just thinking that you're going to create this. I created a product that I knew was really good because when people would try it, they would say it's really good. And so that's like, I'm saying this is my narrative in my head. Uh, Yeah, it's really good. And So, okay, great. We're going to this factory. That's kind of crazy, but you know, it's a good deal. And 
we found the old production manager who can train us on everything. So we'll get this up and running and we'll get packaging in a little bit and then we'll be on shelf and it's going to start selling and it'll be hard to sell, but you know, cause there's so many other brands, but we're going to make it work. And I just had no idea that there so much, the level of complexity of what we were taking on, I knew it would be hard. I wasn't that naive. I knew it would be really hard, but I was not aware of how complex just selling a product in the grocery world is and all the different things you need to be aware of, like trade spend. And, you know, as a shopper, you see a product, it's $2 off. Like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'll buy that one. But you don't know anything about how that product is $2 off. What are the mechanics of making that product be on discount? How to budget for that? How to even set your pricing? How are you dealing with freight to the customer? Like, how should you price all these things in? Should you deliver or should you have the customer pick it up? And then, I mean, there's a million other things just on that side. And then the dairy and supply chain side of it as well. I figured, all right, like how hard could it be to, I mean, find Make dairy. some ice cream. There's a million yeah. ice creams. There's a million dairy products. Like how hard could it be? Just not even thinking that it would be that difficult, as difficult as it has been. And now to the point where we're building relationships directly with farmers and really creating the supply chain and thinking about how we can grow a regenerative supply chain and actually now be a driver of change in the regenerative space where we can create a market for regenerative ingredients. I think that's one of the bigger challenges. That's This kind of goes into a different topic of like one of the bigger challenges in the regenerative space is creating this market for what do we do with all these regenerative products that are being grown and raised on farms. Is that the problem or is there not enough regenerative farms to supply the amount of demand or companies or whatever that want to do this kind of thing? It's kind of the chicken and egg situation where is there no market because there's no supply or is there no supply because there's not the demand and the demand from the middle ground of the manufacturer side and also on the consumer side. So will consumer demand grow if brands are able to put out regenerative products, spread that message, educate consumers, because that's how consumers are going to get educated about food products is seeing it on shelf and learning about it and hearing not just us talking about it, not just Alexander Family Farms talking about it, but products in every aisle talking about it, retailers talking about it, retailers emphasizing regenerative products and you know, having in-store events highlighting it and sales, like event sales highlighting regenerative products. So all these different things play into consumer demand, but then there needs to be the middle level of the processing and the manufacturer side to be able to like use regenerative ingredients and create these products. But then you also need the farmers converting over to regenerative. And how do we make systems available and, you know, financing available for farmers to then make that transition over to regenerative because if they're going to you know pay this money to or have these costs to just change what they're doing there needs to be a reason for them to do that other right. than just you know i mean do you have any idea how much and i mean it must be a huge effort to do that so we don't have to go into it cuz i actually just want to know i mean i love what you guys are doing i think that this is like super important this whole regenerative space is really interesting. 
Have you guys had to fundraise? Because I imagine how has that been? Obviously, doing something new, especially with investors, sometimes can be super challenging because they're going to have a lot of questions and it might be hard to get everybody on the bandwagon. So how has fundraising gone? How much have you raised so far? And what are some of the challenges that you've faced along the way? Yeah. So we're fundraising right now to support all this growth that we're having. And the challenge, I think, is frozen products are expensive. So, you know, you're not going to have the margins that you're going to have if you're dealing with like supplements or beauty products, which have these crazy high margins. So sometimes investors get hesitant just or just around frozen in general. And then ice cream is a very difficult category. So you get a lot of that. But you know, overall, I think it's going well. We're in the process now. It's obviously not an amazing time to be fundraising, just it's a difficult economy, but we have just a ton of momentum behind the business. And so we're we're very excited about what's in front of us. The state of our business is just rapidly changing for the better. So just this year, we've launched in Whole Foods nationally, launched in Sprouts nationally, launched in natural grocers chain-wide expanding through fresh market chain wide after doing a test placement last year in some of their stores. So we'll be in over 1500 stores this year around the country. Nice. Congratulations. That's a really Thank big you. deal. And especially with a, a national rollout in Whole Foods, we were talking before, you're going from like zero to a hundred or, you know, however many stores they have, you're doing it all in one swoop. So, you know, what advice do you have for founders that want to sell in these stores? Sell in as far as like to get your product on shelf. Yeah. Let's see what the yeah. aspiring, you know, they think they want to start a brand one day. It's obviously really hard to, I mean, there's a ton of competition. There's yeah. a ton of competition. Every brand wants to be sold on these retail shelves. What do you think it takes and what did you do to try to get on the shelves? I mean, I think you need to one, have a product that this is kind of the baseline, but you need to have a product that is unique and differentiated, but also think about a lot of people you think about, and I did this too, you think about, okay, how is this product going to be better for the shopper and the consumer? Which of course, your product needs to answer that question. But a lot of people don't think about how does my product help the retail buyer who's actually choosing to put my product on shelf? How are you helping them make more money? Because that's what their job is, is to make their, especially at the larger retailers like a Whole Foods or a Sprouts or Kroger, wherever, you have a buyer who's in charge of a department. So you have a frozen desserts buyer or you have a you know, snacks buyer. And how do you help them make their category do better and make them look better and attract the type of shoppers that they're trying to attract? How do you navigate that conversation? How do you turn it around essentially and make it yeah. good for them? Yeah, exactly. It really comes down to how are you increasing the amount of dollars that they're selling in their category. And every... how can brands do that? Is that through, hey, we've got like a ton of a big community or we've got X number of people that follow us on social media or like, how do you position the business like that? It's hard in the early days because you don't have a ton of data. So the best way to do it is through velocity, which is we sell X number of units per SKU per week per store. That's kind of like the golden metric for velocity. So you need to basically get into some kind of store. Yeah. So I guess like, let's back up. The path would be launch your brand in some local stores. You could go as far down the chain as like a farmer's market up to like 
you know, some natural retail grocery stores in your area. And there's, you know, there'll be from 10 to 50 to 100 of those stores, depending on where you live. And try to get in there, do demos, build up some, you know, consumer awareness and feedback and see what's working, what's not working. And also just work out a, a lot of the kinks of, of <laughs> doing this. Like, and I'm speaking from someone who, for someone who has no experience in this industry, which was me, I had zero experience because you're going to make a ton of mistakes and, you know, go stock the product on shelf yourself, you know, go see what it's like being in the store, like do all those things. And then from there, so you want to try and work towards getting a velocity metric, which is just measuring how fast your product sells on shelf on a repeated per week. Exactly. And so then what you can do is you can take units, but then you can also take your dollars per SKU per week, because if you sell a premium price product, you're at a disadvantage if you're going just on units, because you're going to sell less units than the really cheap product that's, you know, half the price of as yours. But if you sell, you know, a certain amount, like in relation to that cheaper product, you could sell more on a dollars basis, which is really actually what matters. Like, are we measuring our profits in units or are we measuring it in dollars? So that's how you can go to a retailer and say, look, here's my product. Here's what it does. Here's the unique attributes. And I can, you know, increase your dollar profit for your category by whatever number week. That's like, if you can go in with that, that's amazing. That's probably not going to happen when you're a new brand because you're so new. And, you know, if you're just trying it out. So as a new, new brand, you're selling in more on attributes and a story. And can you get the buyer to believe in you and what you're doing? And then the data will come. So when you're selling into natural retail, the data matters less. It still matters, but it matters less for initially selling in and getting on shelf than it does for conventional retail, which is going to be much more data-driven and kind of more old school. But then staying on shelf data, natural, conventional, wherever, at the end of the day, is, is your product selling or not? And so that's when the data will become really important. So... We've talked a lot about the COVID situation. There was a lot of challenges in getting, I think, the brand off the ground. Before we kind of wrap up, what was your biggest challenge and what's some final advice you have for the listeners tuning in? I think the biggest challenge for us was, so we were in a unique place where we had a factory because it was a great opportunity, but it's also a huge risk and a huge almost burden to the business because you need to get that factory moving. You need to create enough sales to make the factory work and pay itself off. And so a big challenge for us was, okay, we're spreading out and we're, we're just taking on stores that are still strategic within our natural channel focus, but kind of further geographically than we want it. And then we probably would have wanted when we were first starting the brand. And we couldn't demo. So we stores weren't allowed any brands to demo because of COVID. And so, you know, no one's going in shopping and exploring and browsing around. The people are like walking in with masks and even gloves and, you know, like, like grabbing exactly what you wanted and leaving or even just ordering, you know, on Instacart and not even going in the store. And you're not going to order some new product you've never heard of on Instacart because you're not going to take that risk. So that was our biggest challenge of just how do we 
break through being really spread out in a really expensive category at a time when we can't be having these face-to-face conversations and sampling with our shoppers. So that was, I think, our biggest challenge. As far as my takeaway advice, I would say just be patient. And it's so hard to be patient because you want to go, go, go as quickly as possible. And you feel like everything is so urgent when you're first starting out, but there's value (laughs) in patience and just realizing that take the time to get the details right, understand what you're doing and don't just immediately rush into everything. But at the same time, you need a little bit. You need to be willing to make some dumb mistakes as well, but don't make too dumb of a mistake. (laughs) What's the dumbest mistake you've made? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Plenty. (laughs) (laughs) You're like so many that I can't even remember. No, I'm just kidding. No, (laughs) I mean, be very measured. Be patient because especially in food and CPG, things move way slower than you think. And so, you know, that's, I think as a early entrepreneur, you're just so antsy to get going. And we only know what we know, you know? So even though you might think it's a dumb mistake, it's probably not, you know, to other someone else, they might be like, that's not a dumb mistake at all. So yes, give yourself some grace and exactly. have some patience and everything will be okay. Just keep working hard. But thank you so much for joining me on the show and sharing your awesome story and your ice cream, which is amazing. <laughs> I can't you. wait to see it in Whole Foods. Congratulations on all of your success and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.